Shadow. My name is Aaron Rogerson. I'm here with my co-host, Alyssa Polizzi. And today we are joined by the infamous Sam Hines. Uh, Sam Hines is a clinical psychology doctoral student who is training in ketamine-assisted therapy. I hope I have that right. Today we'll be discussing psychedelic experiences through the Jungian lens. All right, so our discussion with Sam um, is gonna be followed by an audience Q&A. So if you've got some questions for him, feel free to throw it in the chat. Uh, this will be recorded and put up on YouTube. So if you don't wanna be on camera or have your voice captured, just let us know and we'll uh, ask the question for you. Um, and since this is be being recorded to YouTube, we ask that you keep your video off during our discussion and we'll turn it back on a little bit later. All right, so let's get started. Welcome, Sam. How are you doing today? I'm doing well today. And uh, yeah, it's good to chat with you both again. Happy to be here. Yes, we are very happy to have you on the Golden Shadow. And I wanted to kick off our discussion today kind of on two points. The first one being when we consider psychedelics from a Jungian point of view, there's more of the classic idea of Jung's approach to psychedelics being maybe less than favorable. Um, there are some correspondences that you can read through his letters. It's not necessarily something he wrote about in like the collected works per se, but rather, you know, when inquired about say like mescaline or other psychedelics, um, he felt that it could be a little overwhelming for individuals that that kind of floodgate that could open up to the unconscious could produce all of these images and feelings and possibly even activate latent psychosis, all these different dynamics that for him uh, made him seem wary of the efficacy of psychedelics and rather steered individuals towards this slower process of working with an integrating unconscious material through active imagination. So there's that tension that we see with the classic Jungian thought of, you know, psychedelics equals maybe not so good, but then we have all of this modern uh, viewpoints on it, how it's being um, integrated into the clinical space. So uh, what are your views, you know, as a more modern Jungian on psychedelics and how do we reconcile Jung's views from, you know, many, many decades ago? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And it is true that Jung was wary of psychedelics at best. Um, despite some letters where he spoke about it, there were a couple of places, mostly in his writings on psychosis, where he would bring up uh, mescaline, largely speculating on whether there is some kind of endogenous um, uh, neurotoxin that actually gives rise to what we uh, recognize as psychosis. Um, I think a good place to enter uh, the controversy is around this word of integration, because you hear that a lot in um, kind of psychedelic culture, like psychedelic integration. How are you working with the integration of your uh, recent trip or recent psychedelic experience? And integration with a, a specific sort of meaning is actually really central to Jung's psychology for Jung's psychedelic uh, for psychological development is a progressive process of integration. And that's what analysis or therapy is aiming at is to help assist the kind of ongoing integrative process that is actually part of the development of psychological growth itself. 
Um, and the way that that would naturally occur uh, is that the uh, developing individual or the, uh, will event will have to incorporate more of their own wholeness, more of their own totality, usually through a con like first a confrontation with uh, certain aspects of one's own personality that had been negated, rejected, or ignored. We call that the shadow, largely because it's not compatible with our uh, ego ideal um, or the kind of values around which we construct our sense of self. And that's often a pretty, it can be a painful and difficult uh, process in itself. We're often very defended against that and usually project those things outward first before we have to slowly come to own them. Um, Jung's caution he recognized, and this was actually recognized very early on when, uh, say, LSD was first, uh, it was synthesized by Albert Hoffman in the late 30s. And then in the earlier 40s, the infamous day, Bicycle Day, he accidentally dosed himself. And that was the first acid trip in history. Uh, he worked for a pharmaceutical company called Sandos Labs in Basel, uh, Switzerland. And what they quickly um, discovered was that individuals who kind of take uh, LSD um, often will have experiences of um, kind of forgotten memories coming up, uh, insights into their personality or things that have not been uh, conscious for a long time kind of coming to the surface. So Sandos Labs was the first to kind of come forward and say, mm, this, might be this might be an aid to uh, psychiatry um, started sending out samples of LSD to various uh, psychiatrists or mental hospitals. Um, and actually in the 40s, uh, psychedelics were originally uh, called psychotomimetics. That was a, a term that was initially used for psychedelics because there was a sense that especially the higher you get in dose, the more the experiences that were being reported by people or experienced by people um, were so foreign. So they seem to have a kind of hallucinatory quality. People were thinking these seem to maybe mimic uh, this, what we recognize as psychosis. So actually clinicians taking uh, psychedelics might have insight into what psychotic experience is like. Now that slowly kind of shifted um, as certain dis like distinguishing qualities between uh, at least a lot of what's recognized as psychosis and psychedelic experience started becoming uh, more apparent. So Jung's concern was that <clears throat> the, the psyche needs to have a certain degree of, or at least the ego has to have a certain degree of strength or maturity in his view to be able to assimilate those aspects of self that have not quite been um, assimilated, integrated into the ego. He felt that with what's, with, with what's going on with uh, psychedelics is that the, the barrier between conscious and unconscious gets softened, right? There's this phrase from the uh, French psychologist Pierre Genet, who is very influential on both Freud and Jung and the, the birth of, of depth psychology itself. And it's a French term. I might, might not be pronouncing it Frenchly enough, but it's a baissement du niveau mental. That like sometimes roughly translates to like a lowering of the threshold of consciousness. 
And so that essentially means the to be a self or to have a sense of I at all usually entails that certain things are being uh, kind of brought into uh, that sphere of the ego. And the idea is that there, the psyche is much bigger than that. It, it includes a lot more content, a lot more material, but that's not all crossing the barrier into that sense of I or that sense of awareness. And that can be called the threshold of consciousness. That idea actually goes back even further to uh, Gustav Theodor Fechner, who's known as like the father of experimental psychology. And so actually the way that he started um, kind of approaching this idea is that he, he would work with physical stimuli. This is like the beginning when like when kind of like scientific experiments with the psyche were starting to begin. And they would do things like put a needle tip on somebody's finger and see how much pressure is needed before uh, the individual actually becomes aware of the sensation. So it's this idea that something's going on with the body. At some level, it's probably registering in the body, but at what point does it cross the threshold to become a, a percept or become an actual object of experience? So that's, that's actually kind of a physical uh, uh, process, but the idea is that, well, actually with the psyche itself, there's all the psyche's much bigger than we're aware of at any moment. And there's actually a barrier that certain contents need to cross before we become aware of an interior content. Right. So Jung's concern was that taking psychedelics will induce an abysmont du niveau mental. It'll lower the threshold of consciousness. The individual will become aware of much more of the totality of the psyche uh, than they ordinarily are. And they might be confronted with a lot of content that the ego is not ready or mature enough to integrate yet. He really wanted to work. He thought it was a very slow process. Things need to be kind of assimilated and integrated in a natural way. And that that itself is a difficult process. That's what psychoanalysis for him or analytic uh, work was really about. So his concern was that, yeah, it's, it's, it's just gonna flood the individual. It might actually be kind of damaging or harmful. Uh, the individual might be faced with things that they're just not integrated and mature enough yet to, in, to fully experience and assimilate. Um, Michael Fordham, the uh, British um, analyst, tended to agree with, with Jung here. Um, now that has sort of colored the, that, that colored the kind of classical Jungian attitude in general to psychedelics for a lot of decades. He found that like in the kind of Jungian community based on Jung's commentary on this, that was sort of how the general, uh, opinion sort of coalesced, but there were two, uh, analysts from England, um, Ronald Sanderson and Margot Kuttner. They were early Jungian analysts in the fifth, uh, and in the 1950s, Ronald Sanderson actually went and met Albert Hoffman uh, at Sandoz Labs, got introduced to LSD and started working with it. And in the classical Jungian uh, world, at least, uh, Sanderson and Kuttner are the, are the two kind of dissenting uh, opinions about the efficacy of psychedelics. Sanderson in the 50s started the first uh, LSD um, LSD analytic work and was working with a lot of patients with LSD. 
And he actually had a different opinion. He, he actually want, he, he thought that, that psychedelics could actually be beneficial, especially with cases that are usually more difficult to treat. But for them, it was just a matter of, it's not so much that the, uh, the psychedelic experience and the confrontation with unconscious material itself is uh, in, intrinsically harmful. What's important is that the individuals who are going through this have a sufficient amount of therapeutic support, that they actually have a, a strong uh, analyst who can kind of be present with them, help them do the assimilating. They had a lot of trust that um, that whatever was encountered, if contained well enough in a, in a strong supportive therapeutic uh, relationship, relationship could actually be beneficial. And they found that after doing decades and hundreds to thousands of LSD uh, treatments that nobody seemed to be uh, irrevocably damaged. There were no eruptions of latent psychosis, which would have been Jung's concern. Jung was, was concerned about that with active imagination with a lot of people. He was actually cautious about who to even engage in that process with. Um, so Jung's caution about psychedelics is actually reflective of his, his caution about the, the power and potency of the archetypal psyche uh, just itself by any means. So it's a, yeah, it's a broader concern there. Yeah. I like this point you're bringing up because the, the sort of danger of starting to dip into the unconscious space is something that you do see throughout his work. Um, this uh, kind of cautioning of doing active imagination and engaging the unconscious material. I'm curious if you view, say, dreams or active imagination in the imagery and the themes that come forward as similar um, or parallel to what comes forward in psychedelic experiences, and can we analyze them then similarly? Absolutely. Um, so Jung used that that term, abaissement du niveau mental, lowering the threshold, to describe what's happening with psychedelics, to describe what is happening when you're engaging in active imagination. You actually deliberately uh, kind of enter a relaxed state of consciousness that lowers that threshold and the fantasy material that begins to surface, which is archetypal in nature, is the same uh, unconscious content that's being disclosed, but probably more radically, uh, and um, kind of less voluntarily in a psychedelic experience, especially at very high doses. Uh, he also thought that that's what's going on in sleep, that there's an abysmal that happens and the archetypal material of the deep psyche comes forward uh, in dreams. So those, all of those are, are quite analogous. And for, you know, Jung in particular um, had an attitude uh, about the archetypal contents of the uh, unconscious that they, both um, sometimes provide very uh, necessary uh, healing and formative properties when, when the ego or when the developing psyche is in a point of crisis. And at the same time, they can have a possessive effect. If the ego is not strong, the archetypal powers or images that kind of have an animated autonomy to them can actually shatter the ego, displace it, usurp it. And that's um, that the individual either gets possessed by modes of behavior and perception um, that uh, kind of displace the will and autonomy of the ego and sometimes can be quite destructive um, or uh, just otherwise can kind of create a, a chaotic mass confusion that we call psychosis. Yeah, that, that was Jung's uh, standpoint. I can imagine like having a sort of like cross training regimen where you 
do active imagination and you do dream analysis and you kind of like develop a literacy of that. And then you also like have psychedelics as an option. And as far as um, psychedelic therapy goes, do they recommend that people kind of get in touch with these practices like dream analysis and active imagination as preparation for psychedelics? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so one thing to say is that, you know, Jung, Jung died in 1961. Um, he, it, it's, one has to wonder how his views might have developed if he had been around to see the progression of, of research with psychedelic assisted therapy, the actual data on how people respond to it, how the concerns he had um, are not actually very common at all in terms of being realized. Uh, so like Stanislav Grof, who is one of the pioneers of LSD psychotherapy, has a lot of literature on this. Um, and it seems like um, while, while there are things to be cautious, I don't want to downplay um, that there are things to be cautious about with, with psychedelics, definitely. But my sense is that <clears throat> working with, uh, with folks who are coming in for psychedelic-assisted uh, therapy, if they have uh, experience with, say, dream work or active imagination, especially exercising that's sort of uh, metaphorical or, or symbolic um, uh, kind of way of looking at the contents that emerge and the growth and integrative processes that can happen there might put people on good footing. But I also think that, uh, you know, if they just enter um, a, a good therapeutic relationship, they're well supported, that it's not a necessary prerequisite um, but the idea is that we'll, you know, it, it, the integrative process, we would generally work with that in the same way that we're going to work with dreams or that way that we're going to work with uh, any sort of imaginative content. And there, there is an array of um, orientations and actual uh, attitudes about the best way to work with images, some that kind of more follow Jung's uh, vision of, say, so for instance, uh, Margot Kuttner, who I uh, mentioned earlier, who's one of the early analysts in the 50s, looked at a lot of what emer- she actually wrote, I think one of the earliest, probably the first paper ever in the Jungian literature on LSD psychotherapy, I think it was published in like 1959. And the conclusion that that Kuttner came to is that the images that the imagery that appears in a uh, psychedelic assisted therapy session, like Jung thought of often of dreams and phantom series, fantasy material compensates the conscious attitude. So that whatever um, kind of disposition that the conscious attitude is holding, the imagery is going to be pointing to a complementary perspective that sort of balances uh, and compensates for uh, where the conscious personality is and will bring it into greater balance. Um, that's not always the case. You can take more of a young, uh, uh, Hillmanian or archetypal view, which kind of just stays with the richness of the image feels like the image is sort of ambiguous. It's poetic, it's metaphorical, but really just contemplating it, staying with it. It has all the information that's needed and probably has a whole wealth of ambiguous meaning, but that really just kind of staying with it, contemplating it, turning it over um, will kind of 
give the su sustenance and nourishment that the psyche needs. I've actually kind of found uh, with my own work with uh, ketamine assisted therapy that that perspective is actually very valuable. And sometimes you find that the, the image itself when you just approach it is extremely rich, has a lot of information and even uh, kind of bring like, Hmm. I don't want to bring forward any uh, specific material from any of my clients just because I haven't really gotten their permission to do that yet. But I can say that in my experience, um, sometimes there are very particular random seeming images that are that are puzzling that come up during a session. Just asking the client in a kind of active imagination sort of way in subsequent integration sessions to return to the image there's so much information in it and at times I, I i often notice that just feeling into the image it seems to almost have its own it has an inward dimension it's not just it's not just a visual image there are attitudes emotions dispositions that seem to kind of be enfolded into the information that these uh, images carry forward. And a lot of times it seems to be exactly what the person needs uh, at that moment. And by encouraging them to feel into it, they're accessing parts of themselves that are latent and ready to come forward. So. I'm wondering, Sam, if you could explain maybe for those who are listening, um, who might not be very familiar with psychedelic therapy, what is this process like? Um, are you kind of pulling upon maybe like micro doses of the drug to sort of ease people into this experience? And are there any sort of differences between using something like MDMA versus ketamine? Um, what are the sort of pros and cons of one versus the other? Um, how might one approach just even wanting to look more deeply into this style of therapy? Yeah, that's a, it's a really good question. And to, like, to focus on MDMA versus ketamine, there are certainly uh, differences there. Um, also with what are more called classical psychedelics like LSD or psilocybin. Um, while fr from a Jungian standpoint, the, the thing that all of these things have in common is that they all have the capacity to kind of bring forward um, previously unconscious material. Uh, MDMA in particular has certain neurological effects, like for instance, it, it inhibits the uh, activity of the amygdala in the brain. And that's what kind of controls emotions and especially the fear response. And it also promotes the, um, it all, not only promotes like a uh, production of, of serotonin in the brain, but also certain um, uh neurochemicals that are bound up with with attachment and bonding um, that that all kind of gets released so that's why it's particularly good working with trauma um, because the the fear response is damped down so people can revisit on un previously unconscious memories that are really traumatic and usually going there kind of activates the sympathetic nervous system it can sometimes be uh, almost re-traumatizing if it's not well contained also, the, those positive chemicals help them, you know, kind of bond with the with the presence of the the therapist. So it really helps people reconnect with very painful, sometimes excruciating memories, and uh, helps them integrate them. So there's there's kind of a, a whole biological support there. 
ketamine actually can work with trauma in a whole uh, a different way. Ketamine, in my opinion, is like the weird sibling uh, of the psychedelic family because it it works on a very different um, kind of biological network than uh, other uh, psychedelics do, and it's classified as a dissociative anesthetic. It was actually first used as for for anesthesia purposes, and the whole history of how it how its psychedelic properties were first discovered and introduced is a really interesting story. I, I'm not going to veer off on that right away, but um, there seems to be something in ketamine about inducing dissociation in the present while also lowering the barrier of the threshold of consciousness not only allows uh, unconscious memories to come forward sometimes memories of trauma uh, but that 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 dissociative property helps somebody get a little bit of distance from what's coming up it's like it's almost like a um uh an optimal um introduction of dissociation to also be able to be present with the material without being so gripped and being so deeply in it. So in, in both of these cases, you see how each of these pro, uh, each of these chemicals have properties that help facilitate um, the integration of painful material in unique ways. Um, and it also seems to be an accelerator pad in some ways for just what ha happens naturally during therapy, because there seems to be, you know, Jung's idea about what goes on in therapy or analysis is that th the drive of, of the psyche that always moves towards wholeness, it's like the psyche itself has a deep uh, ingrained natural tendency toward assimilation uh, over time, something about the, the therapeutic situation seems to kind of support and activate that uh, wholeness uh, driving part of the psyche. Um, and things are going to naturally kind of, whatever's in the unconscious that is at the threshold or ready to come up or prepared is it, that setting's going to facilitate that. What happens in psychedelic therapy is you're bringing in um, compounds that actually soften that barrier of the unconscious and it, it just catalyzes the process. You find that that things will come up that um, that would probably have taken a long time to get to under natural circumstances. Sometimes it can be a lot um, and there is a degree of, of, of caution and discernment that that's that's needed there on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, but yeah, so basically psychedelic therapy, in, in my view, um, at least at, at least at, at its first level, because we can go deeper and deeper with this and what, what, what's actually going on in psychedelic um, experience. But you can, I, I like to call it like a catalyst or an accelerator of the natural therapeutic and integrative process. Um, yeah. What are the kind of, um, let's say, scenarios in which psychedelics becomes necessary like the issues that someone has that they cannot make progress on through normal therapy what's the kind of problems on my have or some the kind of trauma they might have that really needs psychedelics to break through and i guess the question is why why does it not work without sort of this like artificial lowering of the threshold you might say mm -hmm. yeah that's a good question and 
I, my initial response would probably be to say that I, I don't know if psychedelics ever become necessary. Um, and I think that there probably are other modalities and lots of other options for healing that also have potential uh, and can be useful. Um, psychedelics in a lot of cases and for different reasons can be helpful and can be advisable. Um, one of the uh, probably central uh, examples in MDMA came up earlier is with post-traumatic stress disorder because, you know, these are extreme uh, states of trauma and they're very, you know, it, it's, it's, it's difficult to work with, it's difficult to heal, it's absolutely possible and it's possible by other means. It just takes, you know, it takes a lot of support. Um, extreme trauma is, can, can, you know, be kind of profound and, and devastating. Uh, to the soul and and to the body, um, and MDMA in particular, just with its uh, kind of neuroactive properties, just adds this scaffolding and support along a number of lines, like mul multiple factors at once that just seem to hold and support the integration of trauma in a beautiful way. That's why the the studies that Maps is bringing forward with working with uh, say MDMA. Um, with uh, combat veterans with PTSD, people with PTSD from, from other forms of trauma. It, it, it's just showing a lot of success. Um, aside from that, in the same way that, you know, you can ask when does therapy become necessary? It's usually when your neurosis explodes and starts messing with your life. That's why I started it initially. Um, and yet, the, at least from, especially from a Jungian standpoint, I think probably more than, than most other uh, forms of therapy, the, an, the, the, the value of analytic work goes beyond just healing. It goes beyond just trying to kind of be less troubled by your neurosis. After a while, it actually becomes becoming who you are. And uh, that's, you know, that can be a container for actually discovering that, image that is within you that has a transpersonal source and grounding that is trying to express itself like the sleeping oak in the acorn that is struggling to express itself the idea is that we all have that that is part of being human that is the nature of the psyche analytic work can help facilitate that process healing is always in service of that. And I don't think any of us get out of, uh, out of being wounded or any of us get out of being neurotic. I think that's actually part of the mystery of becoming. Psychedelics, you know, are just, just like therapy can be an option to, to help facilitate that, to help open things up. They're, they're medicine in, in a, a broader and deeper sense in that way. So psychedelic and drugs really the the accessibility of them continue to grow it seems at least and there's also this kind of notion if you start to view um, the types of drugs that people are getting their hands on that as technology progresses so do the psychedelics they become more powerful we find some new versions like 5-MeO-DMT as an example um, and what are your viewpoints on utilizing these types of drugs recreationally where we don't have that container of the therapeutic space or um, you know necessarily a community to support you through that integration process um, it, it feels sometimes like we're playing with fire when we're you know picking up these substances and utilizing them without the assistance to assimilate what comes forward 
It's such uh, an important point and question. And <laughs> I'm, I'm noticing that the response that's coming up for, from me feels so Jungian in the sense that it's ambivalent and uh, paradoxical because psychedelics, any, any individual psychedelic experience can both be so opening and healing and it can be painful and shattering, you know, and I, I, I don't want to overlook that side of it. Um, and one thing that's, that's even difficult is that, you know, for instance, with, with people who have, who, who are aware that they have a lot of, of trauma, any kind of complex trauma, especially, you know, I would really encourage being very cautious with these uh, substances, making sure that there is adequate support, whether with a sitter or a guide, and just having, you know, strong uh, supports in your life, whether it's family, friends, community, to kind of help hold you because you don't know what's going to come up. But this is also what's difficult, right, is that I know that there are people who have complex forms of trauma, and sometimes they take psychedelics and just have a beautiful experience. And I, I don't want to uh, deny that that is possible and cast too pessimistic a light um, on what's possible and say, you know, if you have trauma, like, you know, it's, it's just not going to be good. Don't go there because I've, I've seen and witnessed otherwise. And that's not to diminish the caution and care, right, that's needed to engage uh, with these substances. I've personally had very shattering experiences with um with psychedelics and what's even what's what's really kind of puzzling and paradoxical there is i i don't know whether to uh interpret that in a positive or negative light for myself you know would i have been better off if that didn't happen just because what came forward was uh, in some ways pretty shattering to where i was at in my development at that time it was painful the process of integration was slow uh, and arduous in some ways I don't know whether I'm worse off for it or not. You know, in some ways, I think that there was something valuable. It might have happened more slowly and organically uh, had I just not done that and then just gone, like, gone along my course of development uh, as it would have nat naturally unfolded. And yet there was something significant uh, that did happen in that experience for me. There's, and it, it does kind of uh, exemplify the, the compensatory uh, quality that, that Jung talks about as I've looked back and kind of reflected on what was going on there. So I think, I think the most responsible answer is to say, approach these things with caution if you are isolated or if you don't have, if you struggle with trauma, um, or just don't know what you're going to encounter, be careful. Everyone has their own right to uh, approach these uh, substances and medicines um, as they feel inclined. I, I, I strongly believe that, but it's, it's, it is not something to take very lightly because it really can open up and disclose and bring forward things that can be very difficult to work with and, and in some cases might be destabilizing might be quite traumatic right so in some ways it's it's important that uh i mean in some ways this also just kind of i think points to um 
that the condition of atomization and the loss of community structures and strong uh, kind of kinship networks of support that kind of con you know that that uh, constitute the modern condition itself is a problem um, that that probably needs uh, also needs needs some healing on a collective level. But yeah, I think the the most important thing is just you know make sure that you. Uh, you have strong networks of support in places where you can be held in your life uh, if you're going to be endeavoring to uh, experiment with these um, these substances because that can be so important. It's really hard to have a shattering experience and then be isolated in it and, and potentially dangerous. Yeah. This is a bit of a segue, but um, Alyssa brought up uh, 5-MeO-DMT and I'm wondering what your thoughts are on ego death or like what is really happening with ego death? And I've never experienced it personally, but like, it seems like people in some sense are still kind of um, remembering, they're, they're making memories, they're kind of seeing what's happening. And yet at the same time, there's no autobiographical eye. Um, how do we make sense of ego death? What is that? Mm. Very good and and complex question, especially what you named there with the fact that there is still witnessing consciousness that somehow has a that that once the eye reconstitutes itself, once the self comes back together, can kind of have some kind of relationship with what happened, even though the self went away. Um, <laughs> uh, Stanislav Grof again, one of the pioneers of. Um, uh, LSD psychotherapy in the 1950s and who developed holotropic breathwork later um, really points toward ego death as a central uh, part. It's, you can say it's the archetype of death and rebirth in some ways. Uh, there's an alchemical dictum uh, in Latin, it's solve et coagula, which means dissolve and coagulate, right? Um, What we, what we call defenses, um, you know, in, in kind of psychoanalytic or psychological terms, you know, the, the, the part of us that wants to uh, hold certain things away because we just don't want to look at them or because they're painful, seems to just exist on a spectrum with that psychological principle that consolidates into a sense of self. Um, because really the, the softening of defenses that just let in more of who we are as individuals, if you just carry that process forward and forward and forward, this would be Groff's standpoint. He kind of came to like a more Vedic interpretation, which is our real identity is that we are continuous with the creative principle of the universe itself. Our true identity is, you know, we're one with the divine. And what happened, you know, if you kind of follow through what happens at lower doses of psychedelics where that barrier, that threshold is just softened a little bit. Um, it will just kind of continue until the, the consolidation of the sense of I seems to dissolve a bit. There is a kind of deconstitu deconstitution of the ego identity that happens. Now, what is really um, valuable about that is that as the ego uh, deconstitutes itself, um, consciousness seems to open up to more and more and more that goes beyond this kind of um, uh, relatively limited and reified sense of uh, individual selfhood. 
that's like the solve, it's the dissolve, right? Now, when the dissolution happens and consciousness opens up to so much more of the content and the material that's there, the coagula side, coagulate to come back together can actually bring back and assimilate into the purview of the conscious personality things that have been disclosed, things that have been opened up that can be as like very valuable um, to reconstitute oneself sense of self around. So it's it's that kind of dissolve uh, out of that I experience, open up to more of what's uh, there in just the totality of the psyche, ranging from the. the from our kind of personal uh, psychological uh, totality, which extends more than, you know, extends further than we're aware of, you know, you know and uh, can actually kind of integrate more, it can have archetypal experiences. Um, mm. this, this brings me to, um, Jeffrey Becker, um, he's an MD who works with ketamine-assisted therapy. And the way he conceptualized what goes on with ego death, um, and as it occurs in um, ketamine-assisted therapy, is he sees it in terms, in Jungian terms, with what Edward Edinger described as a restitution of the ego self-axis. So there's this idea that our individual selves sort of grow and develop out of a transpersonal ground and states of uh, depression especially have to do with our, our ego identity losing sense of contact or continuity with the meaning giving sustenance that actually comes from the transpersonal ground out from which we develop. The, Ed, Edward Edinger saw this as a kind of natural process that actually when we're first born or in the infantile state, there's a tendency to be still kind of fully identified with that um, that, that deeper totality out from which we emerge. And then eventually as the child grows, it meets with boundaries, meets with limitations, uh, meets with the fact that the child's not actually omnipotent and there's a fall into alienation. There's a sense of shame, there's a sense of defeat. Um, there's a sense of inferiority that can come with that. But then over time, it's actually the recognition that that fall, that that meeting with limitation itself also belongs to the transpersonal ground, that that's meant to happen. And while its experience is being alienated from the ultimate, it actually kind of gets incorporated into a broader sense of continuity with the divine that accepts our limitations, accepts the fall from Eden as actual uh, a necessary part of becoming an individual. And it doesn't mean we're disconnected from the, from the divine. So what Jeffrey Becker, uh, views is happening when we have ego death, the self can kind of makes contact with that transpersonal ground again. The self ego access is restored. Uh, we kind of have a memory of a deeper, wider, numinous and divine ground of our being. And when the reconstitution of the identity happens, that sense of groundedness and continuity with that, um, transpersonal source can be maintained 
And so it's, it's, it's basically being stuck in that, that alienated state to kind of um, once again, feeling oneself grounded in a, a deeper source of, of meaning and purpose and like essentially belonging <laughs> uh, to the cosmos um, itself or to the divine itself. So, yeah. Thank you, Sam. I think we're gonna move on to question and answer uh, portion of today's event. So uh, if you would like to ask Sam a question, please make sure to drop it in the chat. And if you'd like to turn your video back on, feel free to do so. I wanted to read a question from Devin and he said, in your work or history of it, has there been any participants who have inherited an overactive imagination after any number of sessions? And if so, what might the general procedure be afterward to process or repair this issue? Mm. It seems that, uh, yeah, Devin had to jump off, so I can't uh, maybe ask him a little clarifying question here. Um, but as far as, yeah, individuals inheriting an overactive imagination after any number of sessions, I, I imagine at least my sense of what that question might mean is if, if the um, therapeutic process itself kind of stimulates or potentiates the imagination in a way where it becomes overactive and maybe flooding. I haven't personally experienced that uh, yet, uh, fortunately. Um, in most cases uh, in my work, the, the stream of uh, imaginative material does kind of come forward in uh, kind of dis almost disbursements or dispersals uh, in a way that can be um, uh, worked with and metabolized uh, at a sustainable pace. Um, I, I, I do imagine, I, I imagine what Jung was cautious about is individuals who probably do uh, have an experience where the unconscious becomes overactivated and the amount of content streaming into consciousness from the archetypal psyche become flooding or overwhelming. I haven't had that experience yet. <laughs> yeah. Oscar, do you want to unmute yourself and ask your question? Okay. So me and my friend were talking yesterday about, um, like experiences and uh, seeing eyes, like small little eyes, everyone when having eyes closed, also like in the trees and in the ceiling, like eyes looking back at you, like they're conscious, like uh, they're like your friend, like your equal, uh, like some other kind of intelligence. And uh, I was thinking about uh, the Turkish evil eye, uh, it's kind of popped into my head when, I was, when we were talking about it. I was wondering, uh, what could this symbol mean? Or, um, I mean, I know that symbols are ultimately personal, but uh, what could they mean since we both had the same experience? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, Oscar. And my, my mind does go in multiple directions with this. And, and one to say that um, at, at least this would be Jung's attitude, right? And 
this could be played with and questioned, but there's a degree to which Jung would maintain that symbols are impersonal, that actually they, they issue from a transpersonal source and that you would find them kind of showing up in, in different contexts, but maybe having a, a resonance of meaning. But you, you brought forward a very particular archetype that this reminded you of, which is the Turkish evil eye, which I think you know has a, 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 a situatedness, a context, and probably a very particular meaning. Um, and I don't know that much about that particular image or what it means, but the experience of seeing eyes, um, especially in nature on trees or just in the, the surround is not an uncommon uh, experience um, while on psychedelics. In fact, uh, there are certain Alex Gray paintings. A, a lot of times there'll be these kind of really trippy, colorful, cosmic uh, depictions where there are eyes everywhere, but he, he also has a one painting that um, is a depiction of a natural scene and you see eyes on, you know, kind of eyes looking out of the trees. And I've actually had that experience myself of trees with just looming eyes looking at me. One way of, of maybe looking at that is I think the eye can be a, can, at, can at least be a signification of insolment, you know, because where there is an eye, there's a sense of, of an interiority or a soul or an inwardness that's looking out and through the eye. An eye sees, which implies that there's a seer there. And so when we have an experience of seeing eyes everywhere, there's there's a number of interpretations that can be made and I honestly don't know but it almost for me seems like it would be the ensoulment of the world the ensoulment of the cosmos itself like the anima mundi the world soul this idea that soul is not just kind of isolated and in, in the human flesh or confined in the human soul but pervades everything and even our ensoulment per kind of partakes of and is continuous with a broader uh worldwide cosmos deep ensoulment. Perhaps when eyes show up, uh, you know, on uh, whether it's trees or even just the any surrounding environment, it's kind of the ensoulment, uh, our participation in a broadly pervasively ensouled world and cosmos, like announcing or symbolizing itself. That's, that's one way you can maybe hold or play with that idea. Um, yeah. We have another question from Wynne. Do you want to unmute yourself and ask your question? Hello, can you hear me? Yes. Uh, I think my question was uh, already answered, but I had another one. Uh, I just wanted to ask uh, what the involvement of nature was in psychedelic assisted therapy. Um, the reason for this is, of course, nature is uh, seen to be healing. And then Jung also mentions that the uh, alchemists, they wanted to preserve the, uh, the bridge to nature. Yeah, that's a really excellent question. Um, especially at the beginnings of, of, of psychedelic therapy, um, <laughs> in some ways, the it, you know it after the '60s and everything, we have this uh, kind of really well-known phrase, just like set and setting, right, being really important. 
um, for the way a psychedelic experience is going to go. And you often find that in people's personal use or their own, whether recreational or maybe self-healing endeavors, uh, you know, a lot of people like to go to natural settings and that can be, there can be an opening uh, to really taking in and receiving nature in a deeper way that can be afforded by psychedelics. But in terms of the development of uh, psychedelic assisted psychotherapy, at least so far as I know, um, sort of direct incorporation of say being out in nature um, therapeutically, I don't know many instances of that actually. And the set and setting early on was actually really terrible. Sometimes it would be like, there's, a, there's actually a story of, of the philosopher Jean, Jean-Paul Sartre doing mescaline. Uh, and this might have been in the 40s or 50s, I think. Um, mescaline, uh, that's the active ingredient in, say, uh, the cacti peyote or, or San Pedro, um, by injection. And it was in like a hospital setting. You know, you have like the bright hospital lights and like white coats and everything. And people having bad experiences in those settings. Um, that has certainly been improved upon. And, you know, the settings have now been kind of made comfortable. Um, uh, more more aesthetically conducive to having a, a positive experience. So it's moved in a good direction, but I think that there's probably a lot of headway to be made in terms of like incorporating um, natural settings or nature into the set and setting itself. Um, I know that it's, you know, walks in, in nature and engagement with nature is often uh, encouraged as just part of the integrative pro- uh, process now. Um, that's pretty standard. Uh, and a lot of um, at least clinical models, but um, at least within the kind of clinical psychedelic assisted therapy world, there's there are other forms of, of practice and work with these medicines that are not in that context and domain and that do operate with very different principles. But I don't know personally of a lot of incorporation of nature into the sessions or into the, the work with the psychedelics like in real time itself. Thank you. All right, Sam, do you have any closing thoughts? Warnings? Yeah, actually something is floating to mind and this is a big kind of a a large thing to drop right now, but it's a very interesting aspect of the history of um, psychedelic psychotherapy and this idea of like a a more broadly uh, cosmically and sold condition. Um, And yeah, I think I I just want to drop it because it's fascinating. a lot of folks will ask like, what, how, how do I, how might someone anticipate what sort of content they might be likely to encounter uh, in the course of a, of a psychedelic um, uh, journey or trip? And this was, this was a challenge that uh, was really central uh, in the early days of, of say LSD psychotherapy because psychedelics are really interesting because it's, it's, it's a single compound when you admit, you know, when it's, when one person takes it versus another, um, they can have radically different experiences. And when the same person takes it at one time, and then another time they, it, 
the content of the journey can be very, very different. And uh, practitioners were really struggling to see if there was any way that people could get some sense uh, of um, what to anticipate and how, how to kind of prepare for that. And it just seemed like there was, you know, it's kind of mysterious. And I think to, to a large extent that that's, that's absolutely true. But um, when Stanislav Grof, one of the pioneers of LSD therapy, um, was a resident at Esalen, uh, the cultural historian Richard Tarnas went to go study with him. And they were working on this, this challenge or this problem. And somebody had suggested to Richard Tarnas, oh, you should look at their natal charts, their astrological transits before they go into psychedelic experiences. Rick Tarnas was so uh, uninterested in this that he didn't want to um, consider it. But eventually uh, they opened up to this notion that actually the most um, reliable indication um, of, of what might come up during a psychedelic experience are uh, somebody's, uh, where your outer planet transits are um, in relation to your astrological natal uh, chart. And it, will, it won't give any concrete predictions of what's gonna come up, but it will actually maybe give some archetypal indication of the kind of themes that are gonna come up. There's so much that can be unpacked for what might be going on there, but that is, um, that's one thing I would, I would leave is that getting some sense of transit astrology when working with psychedelic medicines actually can be really fruitful and getting a sense of what the archetypal weather is gonna be like. So. Also, where can people follow you, Sam? Yeah, I, I have a Twitter account. Um, you can look me up, Sam Hines, on Twitter. My uh, handle is Reverition, R-E-V-E-R-I-C-I-N. I'm pretty quiet on Twitter, but you can reach out to me there if you want to uh, connect. I'd be happy to. Thank you so much, Sam, for joining us today. Um, everyone, let's give Sam a muted round of applause. Um, it's really lovely and thank you for dropping that great symbolic archetypal synchronistic wisdom for us to chew on a bit more. Uh, we've got some upcoming events at the Golden Shadow tomorrow. You can join us for Dialectical Tarot with Meme Analysis and Spearfire Tarot. That's a free event where we'll be diving into the Magician card. Uh, we have a workshop coming up on the Four Suits of the Minor Arcana on Saturday, May 22nd. And we will be deep diving into the Freud and Jung relationship with Dr. Cadell Last on Sunday, May 23rd. Um, last but not least, we're diving into Jung's Red Book with Stephen Fox, aka Uber Boyo. So that's on Sunday, June 6th. So more details over at goldenshadow.org. Thanks everybody for attending and we hope to see you next time. If you find this podcast useful, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash golden shadow org. If you'd like to keep up to date with our projects, attend one of our live events or work one-on-one -on -one with myself or Aaron, head to www.goldenshadow.org. Thanks for listening. See you later.